Okay, we got a busted speaker. Can you hear me? What? Why do I bother? You know, I could have stayed home. I don't need this abuse. <laughs> All right, well, good evening. You know, we are past Genesis 2. We're in Genesis 3. So why don't you turn there? All right, well, you know, we have a week, week on, week off with different things. So let's go back and just start, just pick up Genesis 3, starting in verse 1, to get a running start at tonight's study. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of, eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? And so he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. In verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. So here God pronounces, first of all, the curse on the serpent. Now, Satan took the form of a serpent to deceive Eve. And the word serpent in verse 1 there is a Hebrew word. From what we understand, the root of it means shining one. Shining one. Now, we only know of serpents after the fall. Okay, What was the serpent like before the fall? Well, it could be that the serpent was the most beautiful of all the animals that God had made. A creature that stood upright. A creature that might have radiated with light. A shining one. Some kind of a animal beautiful to behold but of course all that changed when God cursed the serpent suddenly it was reduced to slithering on its belly <laughs> eating dust so to speak turned into that disgusting creature we know today as you can tell I'm not a reptile guy okay so all we know is a serpent today but originally it was obviously very beautiful now Verse 15, God continues. He said, I will put, he's speaking to the serpent, talking to Satan, really. 
said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Verse 15, guys, is known as the protevangelium, which means the first gospel. This is where we get our first hint of the gospel right here in Genesis 3:15. And we see here the offspring mentioned, or the seed of Satan and of the woman, okay? That represents the family of Satan and the family of God. Now, turn to 1 John 15. I'll show you what I mean. I'm sorry, there is no 1 John 15. If you have a 1 John 15, see me afterward. <laughs> we'll get you a new Bible. I'm talking about 1 John 3, okay? I'm sorry. Give me a break tonight, all right? But in 1 John 3, let's pick it up in verse 10. I want to show you what I mean. And this is only one place where you see the terminology, the, the children of Satan, children of God. I mean, you find it in different places as well. But here it comes through real strong. Verse 10. John said, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning that you should love one another. Not as Cain, who was the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. And so right here, we see there is enmity between the righteous and the wicked. <laughs> no big surprise, right? There has always been enmity between those who are the children of God, who live righteously, and then those who belong to Satan as his kids, who live unrighteously. The darkness doesn't like the light, all right? It wants to persecute. It wants us to stamp it out. And so we see this all the way back here, and God is he's framing this thing right here in Genesis 3.15. That he talks about the seed of the devil, the serpent, the seed of the woman, the children of God against the, the children of the devil. And, and here's the thing. The family of God, the family of God would ultimately be born from one seed. One seed, capital S, the Lord Jesus Christ. The woman's seed, capital S, Jesus, God said would crush the devil's head, implying would give to the devil at one point a mortal wound spelling absolute and utter defeat. But first, Satan would bruise the Messiah's heel. And that's a reference to the suffering and physical death that Jesus would endure on the cross, which would not result in his ultimate defeat because we know three days later, he walked from that tomb victorious. And what was he victorious over? He was victorious over sin, Satan, and of course, death itself. So initially, when the devil bruised Jesus' heel, the devil thought he had won. Of course, three days later, the, the full story was, was told. And Jesus was the conqueror, the hero. He was the one who ultimately crushed the devil's head, took him out of commission. Paul put it this way. He vanquished principalities and powers, triumphing over them in his cross. Made a spectacle of them. They're done. Okay, they're defeated enemies. Satan is a toothless tiger, all right? Um, he, he growls a lot and roars a lot, but he can't do anything, okay? But the fact that God right here, this is very important, guys. I want to camp on this for just a few minutes, okay? The fact that God called the woman's seed, he called the woman, he said, the seed of the woman, basically. That is a reference to the virgin birth. 
because every first-year biology student knows that the seeded conception comes from the man, not the woman. The woman provides the egg, which the man's seed fertilizes. So the seed of the woman is a clear reference to this deliverer, this Messiah, that he would be virgin-born. Even as the prophet Isaiah would go on to prophesy so many centuries later in Isaiah 7, 14, where God said, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, this is a very important doctrine, the fact that Jesus Christ was virgin-born. And it's been attacked ever since the beginning. In fact, liberal scholars, theologians who do not believe in the virgin birth, have attacked this verse in Isaiah vehemently over the years. And they will point out, and again, they deny the virgin birth. They are quick to point out that the Hebrew word translated virgin in Isaiah 7.14 is Alma. Alma. And they say the word Alma, strictly speaking, means a woman, a young woman of marriageable age. And therefore, they say, doesn't have to refer to a virgin. However, the word Alma is never used in the Old Testament to speak of a married woman, only a young, unmarried woman. And so because the word Alma is never used in the Old Testament to speak of a married woman, only a young single woman, this leaves only two options. This Alma that God talks about in Isaiah 7.14 must either be A, a young woman who conceived a child out of wedlock, or B, a virgin. Now the fact that Isaiah uses the definite article, the virgin, okay, means he's got a specific virgin in mind. He's not just a virgin, it's the virgin, okay, signifying that through this virgin, God was going to do something very special, something that had never been done before, something unique. Listen, if we're talking about a young woman who was single, single but got pregnant out of wedlock, that's not a sign any, of anything. I mean, there's a lot of young women who get pregnant out of wedlock and have a child. How is that a sign, okay, of God doing something unique? First of all, God didn't, doesn't do immoral things. So that, that can't be the sign that God is talking about. This would be a clear sign, a clear sign. Furthermore, the word Alma always indicates a virgin. In every other place in the Old Testament, the word is used. In fact, Martin Luther offered a hundred guilders to anyone who could show any other place in the Old Testament where the word Alma is translated young woman rather than virgin. But look it, I think this is awesome. Because when Matthew, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, when Matthew quoted from Isaiah 7:14, as he was writing this in the Greek, he chose the word parthenos. A parthenos shall conceive and bear a child. You shall call his name Emmanuel. And Matthew used the Greek word parthenos, and parthenos always means, without exception, a virgin. So I love how the Holy Spirit anticipates these attacks against the word. And in other places, he will then give us more insight or, or will confirm what he's actually saying and Matthew one of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit chose a Greek word that always always means virgin but here's the question why is that so important why is it so I personally believe if you deny the virgin birth you're not going to heaven that's my conviction I believe it's an essential doctrine why is that because if Jesus wasn't virgin born 
he wasn't born sinless. Because the sin passed from the father to the children. You say, I don't get that. Well, that's just the way it is. It passed from the father to the children. And if Jesus would not have been virgin born, it meant he had an earthly father, which meant he had sin, original sin on his soul, and sinners can't die for sinners. That's why this is so important. And that's why Satan attacks it like he does. Because the virgin birth is essential for our salvation, basically. Then God turns to Eve to pronounce the curse on her in verse 16. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now remember, in Genesis 3, verses 15 to 18, God is pronouncing the curse. First on the serpent, and then verse 16, on the woman. And the final words of God to Eve, I think, are especially significant, where he said, your desire shall be for your husband. Now, when we did our marriage study, our series, we talked about this, okay? And at that time I said, look, you know, people read that, your desire shall be for your husband. And people want to think, you know, they want to interpret that as a bit kind of an endearing thing. Oh, isn't that sweet? Her desire will be for her husband, you know? I mean, she won't like him gone too much. Is that true, ladies? Sometimes, you know, you, you wish he was gone a little more. But, uh, but, but God is not speaking in endearing terms here. He's pronouncing the curse. There's nothing endearing about what God is saying, which means we have to understand it in a different way than what some people want to interpret it to be. Look, the word desire in the Hebrew means to seek control. It's the same word used just 11 verses later in Genesis 4, verse 7, where God is talking now about um, Cain. And Cain and Abel brought sacrifices to the Lord. Abel followed what God said, brought a sacrifice according to what God had said, and God accepted it. Cain decided, no, he was going to give God a sacrifice that suited him. And God better accept it, okay? Because this is the way I want to do it. And God rejected it. And Cain pounded Okay, he was upset. And so God eventually spoke to him and said, if, if you do well, in other words, Cain, if you listen to me, do it the way I've told you to do it, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And listen, same Hebrew word, its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. And God is simply saying, Cain, Sin is going to seek to control and to dominate your life, just like with all of us. But we are not to let it. We are not to let our fallen inclinations and evil desires control our lives. They're there. Sin wants to control us. But we are to have mastery over sin. How? As Christians, we know by the power of the Holy Spirit living in us through our relationship with Jesus. But God is applying that same thing now into marriage. Okay? And he is basically telling Adam, and let me paraphrase. Adam, because you listened to the voice of your wife in this, you didn't obey me. You listened to the voice of your wife. Now sin has entered the human race, and you and Eve have fallen. I want you to know something. The way it has been in the garden up until this point, and how long it was, we don't know. But the way it's been in the garden up until this point, your life is not going to be completely different. And we're going to see as he pronounces the curse on Adam, no more would Adam just pick fruit off the trees and eat without working for it, okay? 
Now he would have to toil to bring forth his food from the land. But it would also affect not just how he would feed himself, but would affect his marriage as well. And God is saying, Adam, I want you to know something. Your marriage now is going to be completely different. She's going to want to dominate you. She's going to want to control you from this point on. But you are the head of your family. I have ordained that position. You are not to let her be the ruler of your family. Sounds very chauvinistic. Ooh, feminists go crazy. Hey, look, I don't care what you think about this. This is what God says. His word is not open for, you know, let's toss it around and see if we like it. This is not a suggestion. This is the way God ordained it. And this is marriage the way God says it's to be. And God is saying to the man, I made you. You are to be the head of your family, but I'm going to tell you something. Your wife is not going to go along with this so easily as she once did. Now you're going to have to exercise, and not violent control, not in any way, shape, or form, physical abuse in any way. It's just that, Adam, you're going to have to become a little stronger now in your leadership role. You're going to have to be the man of the house and do what I've told you to do. You see, this is, was nothing new. This is what God had ordained from the very beginning. Okay? Very beginning. Eve originally had been in submission to Adam before the fall. And this is, people say, well, yeah, show me that in the Bible. Okay? You know, you say, well, Eve was in submission to Adam before the fall. Well, where does it say that? Okay, well, how about 1 Timothy 2? How about 1 Timothy 2? You know, people read this and they don't really understand the implication of what Paul's getting at. He's basically saying in the context of church, church government, women are not to be pastors exercising authority over men. Why? Because he goes back to the very design of God in the very beginning for the relationship of a man and a woman in the family context. And listen, God has ordained three major areas of government, human government, okay? The family, the church, and then civil government. And in the family and church, and you can debate whether it's civil government, women can be leaders, but the idea is that, look, we know in the family and in the church, God said clearly that women are not to exercise authority over men. They're not to be leaders over men. And Paul said, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So the way God has designed women, and I'm not saying this is for all women, just a general pattern for most women, is that women tend to be more emotional in the way they think, and men tend to be more logical or linear in the way they think. Now, I'm not saying one is better than the other. But in leadership positions, God is saying, when it comes to important decisions in the family, the man is to be, has the final say. A woman can give definitely give input. Paul said, look, we're still equal with each other. It's not slave or free, male nor female, uh, Jew nor Greek. We're all one in Christ. But that doesn't negate the uh, reality of authority and submission either, just because we're equal. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all equal. But, you know, the Father is in authority over the Son. The Son is in authority over the, over the Spirit. And so even in the Trinity, there is authority and submission. But the idea is that when Paul said God made Adam first and then from Adam he made Eve, what he is saying is, look, do you think woman was an afterthought? Oh, I better make somebody for Adam. No, it was in the design of God. He could have made them both out of the dust of the ground at the same time. 
But he made Adam first, and from Adam made Eve because he was establishing this authority and submission. That's the way God did it. Now, originally, when Adam and Eve were first created, there was this authority and submission, but it was invisible. What do you mean invisible? Well, Adam didn't have to force the issue. He didn't have to say, now look, Eve, you, you need to submit to me on this, all right? Because there was no sin yet. And Adam and Eve functioned very beautifully in the program of God. They functioned in the roles that God had ordained for them. There was no arguing, no fighting over it. Adam knew who God made him to be. Eve knew who God made her to be. And she was happy to just be who God designed her to be in submission to her husband. So the authority and submission was there. It just wasn't visible. However, when the fall occurred and the curse came upon mankind, all that changed. No longer would the man and his wife function any longer beautifully, harmoniously together in marriage. I mean, each knowing what God has ordained, had ordained for them individually, their roles, and functioning in it happily as God designed. Now the woman would desire to usurp her husband's authority. But he was not to allow that to happen, which meant he would now have to take a more visible, dominant, roleless leader in the marriage. Not abusive, please. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying there are men who have, are married to women who are more dominant and they just roll over and let the women take over and lead the family. Now, there are problems with that, which I don't have time to get into tonight, but it creates problems for the children. And you know what? It's what God has ordained. That's the way we need to function. I know we're living in a very, um, well, Everything is confused today, okay? There's all kinds of gender confusion and in many different ways. And the idea that if we talk about God-given roles, people go berserk. But if we function the way God has designed us to function, it goes very well. But see, when the fall came, all that changed. The woman would now seek to exercise authority over her husband. God says, you are not to let her do that. You are the head of your family. And so today we see the effects of the curse being played out in marriages all across this world in the battle of the sexes and things like feminism and chauvinism. I mean, sin has not only disrupted man's relationship with God, but it's also corrupted man's relationship with his fellow man, including, listen, and especially his relationship with his wife. I mean, the fall and then the curse brought all kinds of conflict in the marriage. All kinds of conflict. And God wants us to know that, you know what? The conflict and all the chaos that is ours, uh, that is present in marriages where people are not saved, if they give their heart to Christ, God can restore those marriages back before the fall. I mean, a Christian marriage is the only marriage that has the power of the Holy Spirit for us to be what God wanted us to be from the beginning before sin entered into the human race. But it all comes through His power, it's all by His grace. And here's the thing. When a person gives their heart to Christ and the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of them, they become a new creation. And it only takes one, by the way. Okay? There's been more than a few stories of one person in a marriage getting saved and starting to live the way God designed them to live as a wife or a husband with the love and the respect and the kindness and sacrifice towards the other. And God has used it to save the other spouse. 
But look, if you're both in Christ, if you're both new creations, how can that not affect your marriage? How can your marriage not become a new creation of God? And I've seen many marriages that have become completely recreated by God. Marriages that were on the rocks, marriages that were ready to, to uh, dissolve. And yet God saved the husband and wife, and today the marriage is something beautiful. But look, and we understand this. It's not going to happen until a person is willing to accept God's authority over their life. I mean, over their whole life. None of this, well, my husband needs to change. God's not worried about your husband. He's worried about you. Well, my wife, she's the problem. God's not worried about your wife. He's worried about you. You're the only one God wants to work on. All right? Now, of course, he's working on other people, but we can't come to him and say, well, this person needs your help, Lord. Will you go get him? No, we have plenty to do right here with you. Now, look, when we willingly submit to God's authority over our lives and obey all that he has said, we become more and more like Jesus, who said, I haven't come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And that really is at the heart of all marital problems, self, pride, selfishness. The closer we move towards Jesus, the more we become like Jesus. He was the quintessential servant who said, I haven't come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Of course, the farther we move away from God, the more we move towards the enemy, who is a rebel. And of course, the devil's nature is that of just rebelling against everything God has said. You know, when I talk to couples, and they come to me and they want to basically sit down and talk about the other's problems or what they need to fix. But when I, I can get them alone, I like to get them alone, you know, and talk to them individually. Basically, what I'll try to express to them, and I don't do it in a mean way, but, but let me just tell you, okay, what, what I would basically say. I, I would say to them, look, why'd you come here today? Because I've got problems in my marriage. You don't have a marriage problem. You've got a lordship problem. Your problem is you're not submitting yourself to the lordship of Jesus Christ in obeying what he has told you to do. Oh, but wait a minute. It's you got the wrong person. It's my spouse. Oh, I'm sure your spouse has got plenty of blame to go around too. But you can if you were living and acting towards your spouse the way God told you to act as a husband or a wife, believe me, God would, you know, God would be all over the other person because you're doing what he's told you to do. It's all he can expect. And he would be working then on your spouse. But it, it's so true, you know. People think, oh, i got a marriage problem. No, you got a lordship problem. You're not submitting to the authority of Jesus Christ. Look, the devil knows how to push our buttons, doesn't he? The devil knows how to get us against each other. I'm talking about marriage primarily. In fact, we are in a battle with the devil for the survival of our marriages. Satan wants to destroy them, God. Well, he wants to grow them. He wants them to bear fruit. He wants them to flourish. He wants your marriage to be the closest thing to heaven and earth. So the closest thing to hell and earth. But listen, the war is not with one another. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, the forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Our real enemy is not each other, not in marriage, not in the church, not Republicans and Democrats and so on and so forth. Our real enemy is the devil. And look, and I've talked about this before, but let me just say it again. We are at war with the devil, not with each other. 
However, in any war, there's a certain amount, a certain percentage of casualties that come as a result of what's called friendly fire. Friendly fire. Every soldier knows that sometimes in the heat of battle, friends can be mistaken for enemies. And when that happens, the results can be devastating. Unfortunately, when we talk about spiritual warfare, the same thing is true. Same thing is true. There are many casualties in the body of Christ, and particularly in marriage, that are the result of friendly fire. And by that I mean, listen to me, people who are supposed to be on the same side, fighting against the real enemy, often find themselves fighting each other, taking shots at one another, wounding and hurting and even destroying those who are supposed to be allies and not enemies. How true this is in marriage. You know, in Ephesians 6, when Paul reminded us that our real struggles are not with each other, but with principalities and powers and so on. He did so directly on the heels of his teaching on marriage. Was Paul trying to communicate something to us? Did he do this purposely because in his mind he knew that marriage and family could expect to be the target of much, if not most, of the enemy's attacks, the most we get the brunt of the spiritual warfare that we will encounter as Christians? I mean, we see this in the book of Genesis. As we read the first few chapters in the book of Genesis, we can see that it didn't take Satan long to attack the first marriage on the face of the earth. We see at the end of Genesis chapter 2, God married Adam and Eve. Chapter 3, Satan attacks. Why? Well, for several reasons. But primarily, Satan hates God. He wants to attack God, but he knows he can't do anything to hurt God. So what's the next best thing? Attack those made in his image. Attack those that he loves, his kids. I want you to be sensitive to something here. Satan's plan really, listen, Satan's plan really wasn't to destroy marriage. His real plan wasn't to divide Adam and Eve from one another. His real plan was to destroy their relationship with God, to sever their fellowship with God, because Satan knew, he's no dummy, he knew, if he can get the human race to fall, and he did, well, that would result in a fallen, sinful, selfish humanity that would wind up destroying one another. He wouldn't have to do the dirty work of wiping each one out individually. He just sowed sin into the human race. And then selfishness and pride and everything else would go into effect. And you would have people wiping each other out. And marriage and family would be the greatest casualties. I mean, look, if you liken society to a tree and the roots to God... And marriage to the fruit, as long as the trunk or the tree is attached to its roots and the roots are, you know, the roots are going to be feeding it and the fruit is going to keep coming. Now, if you want to destroy the fruit of that tree, you could try to take out every piece of fruit individually. That would probably be very inefficient. The best way to do it is to sever the tree from its roots. And then all the fruit just shrivels and dies. And that's what Satan has done in our society. He has secularized America. He has severed us from our roots. And what is happening? Everything good God designed, family and marriage and everything else good, is shriveling and dying. Look, the real battle, guys, isn't for the survival of your marriage. It's for the survival of your fellowship with God. I tell people, look, your problems in marriage, they're a symptom. You're looking at them as if they're the main problem. They're not the main problem. They're the symptom. 
The main problem is you guys are not in a right relationship with God. And if you get your focus back on that relationship and work on cultivating that relationship where you get yourself connected to the roots, so to speak, the life of God will begin to flow into your marriage again and it will be fruitful. So you don't need marriage counseling per se. You need to go home and start getting into the word. Get on your face and repent. Ask God for forgiveness. Get connected to God again. Get back into fellowship with the Lord. Because these marital problems are a symptom. Your walk with God is not where it should be. Work on that. And after God pronounces the curse on Eve, he then turns to Adam. Verse 17. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. <laughs> because you have heeded the voice of your wife. You know, some men look at this and go, all right, well, here it is right here. God is telling me I should never listen to my wife in anything. <laughs> See, here's my biblical justification right here. Just do whatever I want. Don't, want. don't listen to my wife. But look, no, that's not what God is saying. Later he would tell Abram, listen to the voice of your wife. All God is saying is, don't listen to your wife if she tries to tell you to do something I've told you not to do. And that goes for you too, girls, of course. God says, he goes on to say, um, you know, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from. That was the issue. And that's why Jesus even said something so shocking that we, so if you don't understand what he's saying, it's hard to process it. If you don't hate your mother and father, then you're not worthy of me. But what does that mean? I thought we're supposed to honor our mothers and fathers. Of course we are. All of Jesus was saying, look, you're not to let your parents influence you above what I've said. In other words, your parents are not to govern your life. I'm to govern your life. And if you don't hate their influence, in other words, you know, are so devoted to me that your love for them seems like hate in comparison, you're not worthy of me. I've got to be supreme, supreme in your life. Your supreme Lord. But listen, God went on to say, He said, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. When Adam ate the forbidden fruit, it brought the curse of God upon mankind. That's true. Of which physical death was the most devastating result. Listen, it wasn't the fruit that killed Adam. It was his disobedience. That tree became a symbol of whether or not Adam was going to obey God or not. I don't believe the fruit was poisonous. It was not the fruit that brought death into the world. It was Adam's disobedience. But death has brought much sorrow into the world. This is something that God never wanted for the human race. One of the most poignant examples of this is John 11. And you don't have to turn there, but you know the story. How that Lazarus got very ill and Mary and Martha sent some servants to get Jesus to, to come and heal him. And Jesus purposely you know, hung around for a few days. And by the time he got there to Bethany, that uh, Lazarus was dead and buried four days. 
And you remember this scene. In those days, they would hire professional mourners who would wail and scream and carry on because that's the way you honor the dead. So it was a pretty depressing environment, you know. And here comes Jesus coming into the town of Bethany, city limits, and some people saw him, and they ran to Martha and said, Jesus is coming. And Martha got up and ran to where Jesus was and fell at his feet and rebuked him. She said, you know, Lord, where were you? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that, you know, God will listen to whatever you say. And, Martha, and Jesus said, Martha, your brother's going to live again. And she says, I know, Lord, at the resurrection of the last day. And she said, Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, though, though he dies, will live again. And he who lives and believes in me will never die. Don't you believe this? And so a little while later, Jesus walks a little farther. And here comes Mary, right? And Mary falls at his feet and says the same thing. And Jesus says, show me where he was late, where he's laid. And so they brought Jesus to the tomb of Lazarus. And it says, when Jesus saw the tomb, he groaned in his spirit. The Greek is very strong. It's a word that means violent displeasure. Violent displeasure. He was so angry as he stood outside the tomb of Lazarus. Why? Some of you say, well, because he had lost a good friend. He was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew that. I believe Jesus Christ was angry because he stood in the presence of death, and death was something God never wanted the human race to have to experience. But God honored our free will. Did God know it was going to happen? Of course he knew it was going to happen. He had the plan of redemption all in place before he ever made us. He knew it was all going to happen. That doesn't mean he wanted it for us, though. Death has brought a lot of sorrow into this world. But Jesus is going to wipe away every tear at one point. We're going to get our new bodies. We're going to live in a glorious new kingdom. And there will be no more sorrow or sickness or suffering or death. Just joy unspeakable and full of glory. But it's important to realize that Adam's sin didn't just bring a curse on mankind, but on all the animals that God had created. And that was implied in the Lord's curse upon the serpent. Verse 14 once again so the lord god said to the serpent because you have done this you are cursed what more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field all the animals were cursed but the serpent was especially extra cursed and on your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life in fact it didn't just affect mankind and animals it affected all of god's creation it was all corrupted Paul said in Romans 8, verse 20, for the creation, the whole creation, was subjected to futility at the fall. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in what? In hope. One author put it this way, said, Take and eat. Those are the words that Eve no doubt said to Adam when he, she gave him the forbidden fruit. Take and eat. The author says, those words will one day become the verbs of salvation. Remember Jesus, take and eat. This is my body, broken for you. A metaphor for salvation, for believing. Take and eat will one day become verbs of salvation, but only after Jesus had lived in the world of Adam's curse and surrendered to death. He goes on to say, God's plan, this is very important, guys. God's plan wasn't setback okay it wasn't to setback what does that mean god's plan in redemption wasn't to just bring man back to his original starting point 
before the fall into a state of innocence. That wasn't God's plan. He knew we were going to blow it, so he had something much better in mind than just a reset. Okay, God's plan wasn't set back when Adam and Eve sinned because God's plan was to bring forth something greater than man in the innocence of, in the innocence of Eden. God wanted more than innocent man. His plan is to bring forth redeemed man. As somebody once said, we have gained more in Christ than we ever lost in Adam. That's something we need to understand. See, but the very fact God used our own weakness and allowed us to fall, his plan was not just to bring us back and do a reset. He wanted us not to be innocent men and women, to be redeemed men and women. That way we would be heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And everything that belonged to God would be ours someday. We can't get our mind around that just yet. <laughs> Won't take long once the rapture happens. It'll sink in real quick what all that means. But verse 20. And Adam called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. What did God call her? Adam. He called both of them Adam. Okay. Mr. Man, Mrs. Man, Mankind. They were both called, that's what God called her, Adam. So what's Adam doing renaming her Eve? Well, Eve is more of a title than a name. She's the mother of all living. But you have to understand something, that Eve means the giver of life. And I think that Adam is acknowledging something God has just gotten done saying. Adam knew that woman came from him, Eve. But he also knew that God had just promised that from Eve, from woman, will come the Redeemer, who would give life, spiritual life to all people. And I think he was honoring his wife. I think he was honoring his wife. I think he was saying to her, honey, God made you for me. But you know what? He's got greater plans for you than he ever had for me. Because through you it's going to come a Redeemer. And through him... And we don't know how much Adam understood. I think we sell these people a little too short, though. I think they understood spiritual things a lot more than we give them credit for. Anyways, verse 21. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skins and clothed them. Now, we talked about this in length last time, so I won't get into it. But let me just say this. There is only two religions in the world. You got that? Two religions. The religion of leaves and the religion of skins. <laughs> leaves, that's religion. Adam and Eve, through the works of their hands, sewed fig leaves together to cover the shame of their nakedness. That's religion. Where through the works of our hands, people try to cover their guilt and shame and nakedness before God. God didn't allow that. What did God do? Took two animals from the garden, killed them probably right in front of Adam and Eve, to show them the sin brings death? I told you that. But I'm going to allow a substitute. You both should die. But instead I'm going to take the blood of these substitutes. They will die in your place. And then who clothed Adam and Eve with those skins? God did. Do we see anything in the text where Adam and Eve helped God do that? They were passive, weren't they? Completely passive. When God covers the shame of our sin, He doesn't need our help. 
He doesn't ask us, will you give me a hand with this? It's completely a passive thing. He does all the work. Even as Paul said, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourself. It's a gift of God. Not the result of your works, my works, lest any of us should boast. In fact, I love what God said in Isaiah 61, verse 10, along these lines. He said, I will greatly multiply, excuse me, Isaiah speaking, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, Christ's righteousness, right? Verse 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Let me just stop there. Man has become like one of us. Who's God talking to there? Himself. <laughs> J.W. say angels. Okay, because they don't believe in the Trinity. Well, in Genesis 1, or 28, God said, let us make man in our image. You say to your Jehovah's Witness friends, uh, who's talking there? Who's he talking to? Angels. Angels don't create. Let us make man in our image. No, he's talking to himself. That's okay if you're a trinity, okay? <laughs> That's okay if you're a trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, okay? Separate and distinct, but one God. Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. Well, isn't that what Eve thought would be a good idea? Didn't the devil tell her that you won't surely die if you eat that fruit? God knows that in the day they eat of that fruit, you'll become like him, knowing good and evil. Well, isn't that a good thing? Well, you tell me, all right? I know one thing for sure. It did happen as the devil promised, in the sense that we're no longer now in a state of innocence. They now knew the difference between good and evil. But later on, later on, Satan would work very hard in the heart of fallen man to do away with the good and evil part which represents God's absolute standard. Only God says what is truly good, what is truly evil. And Satan would, from this point, work very hard in the hearts of people to do away with that good and evil part. In other words, God's standard of right and wrong. So that everyone would eventually start doing, listen, whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And that's exactly where we are today. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Verse 22. I, I got to tell you, this is fascinating to me. Okay. Is God actually saying that he made a tree? And I, we know it exists, the tree of life. But, but is he really saying here what we think he's saying? That he made a tree, created a tree called the tree of life that bears fruit containing supernatural properties? that if eaten and continue to be eaten will cause a person's body to keep regenerating itself indefinitely? You have to answer that for yourself. I'll, I'll give you a few scriptures that I think are also very fascinating and I go along with that idea. Turn to Revelation 2. Boy, would I love a piece of that fruit right now. But in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, Jesus said, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So the tree of life 
We see it in the Garden of Eden, but we also see it. Is he talking about the millennial kingdom? Probably talking about the eternal state, the heavenly Jerusalem. The tree of life is even in the paradise of God, the heaven. Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. Now we are definitely talking about the eternal state here. We've moved past time, millennial kingdom's over with. Now we're in the eternal state. And God is showing John this vision of heaven now. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and the Lamb. In the middle of its, of its street, the New Jerusalem, and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree, in the word tree there's an italics, so it's not really in the Greek. Take it out. This thing bore 12 fruits, each yielding its fruit every month. It could be a different branch on this one tree of life. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. What is this thing doing? All right. This tree of life, what is it all about? I mean, when we get to heaven, are we going to keep eating from the tree of life and we are going to remain eternally young? It sounds pretty fanciful. I don't know. I'm just trying to figure out what God's trying to tell us here. And of course, in Revelation 22, verse 14, we read, Blessed are those who do His commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter through the gates into the city, the New Jerusalem. All right, let's finish up. Verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent out of the Garden of Eden, uh, I'm sorry, therefore the Lord God sent him out, Adam and Eve, out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, cherubim, the I-M means plural. Cherub, singular, cherubim, two or more. Cherubim are the highest ranking and most powerful angelic beings that God has created. Many commentators say that God put two or more cherubs, two or more of these very powerful beings at the entrance of the Garden of Eden, listen, to keep Adam and Eve from going back into the garden and eating from the tree of life and living forever in their fallen condition. And I agree with that in part. I mean, I'm sure that was part of the reason that God did this. But if that was all God wanted to do, was to keep Adam and Eve out of the garden, he wouldn't need, listen, special forces angels, the best of the best to do it. Let's be honest. In the days of Hezekiah, God sent one lower level angel from heaven, and this angel wiped out 185,000 Assyrians one night after dinner. These are tough beings, okay? And I believe that God positioned these very powerful angels at the entrance to the garden to guard the way to the tree of life not primarily to keep Adam and Eve out, but primarily primarily to keep Satan from getting in and destroying this tree. I mean, it doesn't even say he put the cherubim there with a flaming sword to keep Adam and Eve out. What does it say here? Why did he do that? To what? To guard the way to the tree of life, to keep it open, to keep it accessible when the time was right. What are we learning here? Okay. Tell me, because I'm not even sure I'm teaching. I'm not even sure what I'm teaching tonight. I wish I could tell you I knew exactly what this is all about. 
I will tell you what most people think it's about, and I agree. I agree. If Satan could destroy, and again, these, these cherubim, very powerful, angelic creatures, they were put there just to keep Adam and Eve from getting back in. I mean, you know, that's, okay, you didn't need the top guys, right? But if Satan could destroy the tree of life, I think he would make sure that death was never defeated, the grave never conquered, and that mankind would forever remain subject to death. I like what Barnhouse said, Donald Gray Barnhouse. He said, as soon as man sinned, God found him and provided him a savior. That was the promised Eve. He opened a way back to himself. That's what the tree of life represents. Eternal life with God. He opened a way back to himself and guards that way jealously lest anyone should close it. The only one who could really close it would be Satan, I would imagine. Any angel of the lowest rank could have dealt with Adam. The flaming sword was pointed against Satan to keep him from destroying the way of access which God had set up. In other words, we see here the tremendous mercy of God. Here man has blown it. God's pronounced the curse. God has had to drive Adam and Eve out of the garden. But he knows that someday he wants the way to be kept open because someday he's going to send a redeemer. And the tree of life, the real tree of life, as we've said before, is the cross. And of course, the cross of Christ is what allows us to have eternal life as Jesus shed his blood. But God is keeping that way open. He is guarding it jealously so that Satan can do nothing. And Satan's a defeated foe. I mean, Jesus crushed the serpent's head, implying absolute victory that Satan would never recover from. Satan's on borrowed time. Satan's a defeated foe. He can't really keep people from the tree of life. He can't really keep people from salvation. But he works in it through their flesh to cause them to want to reject the gift of God. These people that make a pact with the devil, and uh, I think it was Rich who sent me, I don't know how many links, of movie stars and uh, recording artists, who are recorded as having made a pact with the devil, you hear their own words. I made a pact with the devil who promised to give me fame and fortune. I've sold my soul to the devil. They don't even know what they're talking about. You know, I sold my soul to the devil. I made a pact with the devil. Well, you might have made a pact with the devil. The devil made a lie to you and told you that now you belong to him forever. I got news for you. If at any time you want to break free of the devil's grip, you come to Jesus. Because the blood of Jesus Christ will smash the prison, set the captives free, break the chains that bind. Satan can make you think you belong to him. At any time you want to belong to Jesus Christ, he will set you free. The way to the tree of life is always open to those who want to come to Jesus by faith. Amen? Amen. All right, we'll continue on next time. Let's pray. Father. We thank you so much, Lord, for these lessons. These are incredible things that you're teaching us in such simple ways, but such profound truths. And Lord, we ask that you'd give us grace to walk in the light of your truth. That Lord, all the things that you are teaching us here, you'll give us grace to apply. And we thank you, Lord, that you have vanquished principalities and powers. We thank you, Lord, that the devil 
He goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, but if we resist him in our faith, he's a toothless wonder. He growls a lot, makes a lot of noise, but he's helpless. Lord, you are the lion of the tribe of Judah. You are almighty God. And we thank you that by your blood, the way to the tree of life has been made, is kept open and available to anyone who will come to you by faith and receive you as Lord and Savior. And Lord, we ask you to continue to bless our time in your word. For we give you this, these studies and ask that your spirit be our teacher. For we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.